Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, before we get started, quick announcement. I uh, just want to put in the forefront the uh, family service day that is coming up. Uh, not this Saturday, but the next Saturday. I b- believe it's the 28th. Um, if you go to our webpage and click on the Gilray campus and then events, you're going to see a big picture of it. You can sign up. Essentially, it's a day where we get to uh, go out and serve in our community in different ways. It's family friendly. You'll see a bunch of different activities and sites that will be serving our community. But again, it's just a way for us as a church to serve and love our community. Sometimes um, people don't want to listen to you. Uh, talk about Jesus, but they will let you serve them, and then maybe uh, in that relationships can be built, and God can be glorified, and the news go out. So just keep that on the radar. Go to the webpage. Sign up. Uh, We're second week of a series called Go Therefore. If you grew up in church, you're probably familiar with that phrase, go therefore. It comes from the conclusion of Matthew's gospel biography of the life of Jesus, and it says this, and Jesus came and said to them, the disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So the issue of evangelism, telling people the good news, telling people about Jesus, isn't like an option or something you get to do if you're a Christian. It's a command, and it's specifically a command made by Jesus after he claims that all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. So it's kind of like an an old school way of saying, listen up, go, do this, make disciples, preach the gospel, teach people how to obey all that I've commanded you. When it comes to evangelism, though, a lot of mixed feelings. Some people, like, they like it. They're like, that's one of my spiritual gifts. Some of you are terrified of it. Some of you tried to tell someone about Jesus and you just got rejected so hard. It was so brutal, just instant flashbacks to, like, the prom of 76, when you were just turned down and rejected, just absolutely devastating. When we we think about evangelism, most people have been taught a a single method, a singular method. Um, And again, if you grew up in church, you're gonna know some of these things that I'm about to say. If not, great, no worries. But like, you get taught a specific way to evangelize. And it's funny, sometimes it like corresponds to decades. So like there was a way to evangelize in the 80s, then a way in the 90s. So for instance, raise your hand if you've heard of the four spiritual laws. Okay, four spiritual laws, God of people. What about, what about the Romans road? Anybody? Now there's this other one. I, I, I asked Hollister and they knew it. Maybe you guys will know it. It's like, uses like colors. It's just like you have like cards that are a color and it's like starts off like black and, and then it goes to white and red and then it goes to like green. It's like new life. Anyone know that one? What's that one called? What's it called? That's the 70s method? Nice. Yeah. Someone was like just raising up the colors. Dude, the colors are changing, bro. It's like Jesus. Oh, hol- uh, the word, wordless book is what it's called. The word, did you know the whole time, Terry, and you just weren't saying it? Okay, but it triggered. You forgot, a lot of people forgot. A lot of people forgot a lot of things that happened in the 70s. Um, so there's these different methods. Uh, 
But when we look at Jesus, the master evangelist, we'll see that he never adopts like one singular method. He, he, he responds to people in different ways depending upon their own backgrounds. Every single human being, every single person in this room, we are composed of, of different stories, different pains, different triumphs, different trauma, different abuse, just all kinds of things that shape and mold us to make us who we are today. And what Jesus does is he takes the gospel, the one unchanging true word of God, and he has it attack different problems in our life, different sin barriers. For some people, the sin barrier may be shame. And and, and the gospel has to, to find a way to penetrate through your shame. For others, it could be an issue of anger or hatred or pride or arrogance. So when Jesus speaks with the shame-filled woman at the well, he says, I have living waters. To the rich young ruler, he says, go and sell everything you have. If you don't do that, you can't come follow me. To one person, he may say, my grace is sufficient, my grace is enough. And to another, he says, if your hand causes you to sin, chop it off. Better to enter into heaven with one hand than go to hell and burn. To the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. To the Pharisees, the religious elite, woe to you, you are whitewashed tombs. Because sometimes you have to mercifully and graciously multiply the loaves and fishes and feed the people. And sometimes you got to make a whip and drive out the money changers in the temple. So the gospel is able to move and address different sin issues in different ways. Last week, we looked at the story of a guy named Nicodemus. Nicodemus was like, in in the culture's eyes, like the perfect class act. Good guy, morally upright, super religious, obedient, wealthy, probably has the first five books of the Bible memorized. He's got it together. And he comes to Jesus. And Jesus doesn't come to him and say like, oh, you know, I just want you to know how much God loves you and how he has this wonderful plan for your life and God is so good. No, he tells Nicodemus, who is by the culture's eyes a good guy, but is is trusting in his Jewish ethnicity and trusting in his religious kind of deeds to justify him, he tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. Yes, you, even you, Nicodemus, you've got it all down and everyone thinks you got it all together. Everything must die, something new must be born you must be born again. Today, we're gonna look at something that may be like the complete opposite of of Nicodemus. It's the story of the paralytic in Mark chapter two. Now, as we read this, know that the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are biographies about the life of Jesus but they're not merely just recording historical facts and regurgitating historical facts. They are beautiful storytellers. They're recording and telling of the historical facts, but they tell the story in a beautiful way. They highlight certain things. They, they bring to the surface certain words. They, they want you to see things going on in the story. And so sometimes, again, we just read so fast that we miss things. But these are masterful, beautiful storytellers awakening us to the work and ministry of Jesus. Mark chapter two, verse one. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days it was reported that he was at home and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even the door, and he was preaching, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. Now, if you've heard this story before, you grew up in church, 
read this several times, there's something in here that seems odd, or there's something in this, in this text that may contradict what we've always thought. What, what stands out in this passage to you, anything? That may be different from something you've learned in the past. Jesus at home. He's at home. Wait a second, Jesus got a home? Christians always say that Jesus had no home. He was a homeless man, right? He's a homeless man, he doesn't have a home. It's like, this is standard. If you're new to Christianity, this, isn't, this is not a big deal to you, but for everyone else, it's like, what? Every, everyone always says Jesus was homeless. And Jesus actually says, birds have nests, foxes have dens, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. So you're like, what, what, what's going on here? Okay, no one knows for certain, but what we do know what's certain is Mark tells us Jesus was at home. So a number of things could be taking place. One, uh, Jesus may be staying with one of the disciples or an uh, early follower of Jesus or family in Capernaum, and he's, this is like his home. It's like when you move out and go live with your uncle, that's, that's home. That becomes home now. Possibly Jesus, when he reached a certain age, left his parents' house and got, got a home, and this is his home. He may own it. Or it could be that, that Jesus has a home at this point, but uh, he hasn't begun his national tour yet. We're in Mark chapter 2, so we're at the very beginning. And right now, Jesus is just doing like a Bible study at his house. But as his fame grows in Israel, he begins like, he, he does the national tour. He starts traveling around the Sea of Galilee, eventually makes his way up to Jerusalem. But maybe at this point in the ministry, he's just doing like home Bible studies and there's tons of people coming. We don't know exactly, but this is what's important. Mark gives us the setting. What is the setting of this story? Jesus is home. Now, picture it. How big would it be? We know from the archaeological evidence, um, the, the, the largest room in Capernaum that we've, we've looked at from, from archaeology, the, the, the longest span is 18 feet. So it's not a big, massive room. So don't think like hundreds or even thousands of people. Think probably like 50 people jam-packed in a small room. They're hanging out, being pushed out the door, and maybe there's a little line following, and people are like getting as close as they can on the outside to hear the teaching of Jesus. So you picture that. Jesus at home preaching the word. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Roofs at this time... Uh, serve not only to, to protect you above your head, but they, they serve as a deck for you to go hang out. Like inside the, the, the house, you know, gets stuffy, the air gets old, you know how it is. You go out for fresh air. The way you went out for fresh air back in the day, in Jesus' day, you go hang out on your roof. So it's a pretty strong roof. You could walk on it, but it's essentially a bunch of um, sticks, larger pieces of wood, and then dry mud. Mud is then dried into it. And so you had this like kind of sturdy enough to strong on, but not strong enough that you can't dig through it mud roof. Now you got to picture this. Picture it. Jesus is teaching. And he begins to hear something. Like a little, little, something on the roof. It's like a rat or something. A giant rat. And he like gets louder. It's like, this is a demon rat. This is an evil. This has got to be a huge, huge, like, like something's going on. 
And, and then the mud starts to fall through on Jesus, possibly, but certainly some of the people there. I mean, the mud, dirt, it's dirty. And Jesus is going like, this, this, this is my house, man. He's digging through the roof. Do you know who I am? The son of God, man, dig through my, you know. He's, no, no, he just pauses, pauses. And they begin to dig more and more, and eventually there's a hole. And a man who is paralyzed is lowered and presented to Jesus. Now, a little bit about this man. We don't know his story and we don't know exactly, but we know a little bit about him just because of his condition. Paralysis, I mean, not being able to walk is, is a terrible condition, both today and yesterday. And I can't, the, the, the pain and the suffering and, and all the emotional and psychological things that come along with it, I mean, this is immense pain and suffering. 2,000 years ago, it was very similar to how it is today, but every single reason why it's difficult today is just magnified. So for one, um, men in our culture find a big part of their identity in their work. And that's true of actually pretty much men in all cultures. You find identity in work. That's why when it comes to retire, it's difficult. It's like you may hate your job and be so tired of working, but like you're having an emotional issue of retiring because you stopped working, because your identity is bound up with that. Now that is true of, of the ancient world, but even more so then, why? Because if you were a carpenter, for instance, why were you a carpenter? Because your father was a carpenter, and why was he a carpenter? Because most likely his dad was a carpenter. So your work is bound up in your identity and who you are, that's where you find worth and meaning if you, like, like the most men, if they do something, even if it's like hard work in the backyard pulling weeds, like a man walks in and he instantly feels like good. Like you may be tired and exhausted, I hate weeds, they're a curse from God, but like, you've, like that accomplishment, that physical activity, it, get, it does something to your brain. You're wired to work. And so if you're unable to work, there's a sense of your identity being fragmented, way more so 2,000 years ago, because your work is not only bound up with your worth and, and your kind of sense of personhood, but it's bound up with your family, the community. And in, in an ancient Near Eastern culture, the group, the community, the family, the lineage is more important than the individual. So this paralytic man may feel worthless, even if he doesn't, most likely he's been told he's worthless by others. Two, he probably isn't married and he probably doesn't have kids. Why? Um, in our culture, we see, unfortunately, it's only part of the equation, we see sex uh, primarily as a means for pleasure. 2,000 years ago in the Jewish world, sex was primarily a means for procreation, was to have kids. Um, and so, you would have kids, and the reason why a woman would get married and have kids to a man is because women, they couldn't just be, be a single woman and go work in the workplace. It wasn't like that 2,000 years ago. You married, and the man was supposed to, to provide and to protect, and if a man couldn't provide and protect for his family, then the girl's dad, in kind of arranged marriage system, isn't gonna, isn't gonna let this marriage happen. And 2,000 years ago, they had it right without the father's approval. 
Don't, I'm not kidding. It's not a joke. Without dad's approval, not gonna happen. Fiddler on the Roof demonstrates this. Very good movie. So we don't know certainty, but most likely because of all the, the kind of cultural kind of customs and issues, this man isn't married and he doesn't have kids. It is shameful for a Jewish man in the first century world to not be married and have kids. Third, and we don't know this with certainty, but we, we, can, we have some clues. Um, there's a chance that this man might have been abandoned by his family. How do you know? Well, why would someone in the first century world uh, beg? Why would they be a beggar? If you see someone in Jerusalem and, and they're blind and they're begging, why are they doing that? It's because their family has abandoned them. You wouldn't need to beg if your family was providing for you. It was the role of the family in the first century Jewish world to provide for those who were unable to provide for themselves. So if you see a beggar, it's because they've been abandoned or had their family died. This man, we don't know if he was a beggar, but we know that four men brought him to Jesus. And the text just says there's these four guys, these four dudes. It doesn't say his brothers or, and then his, the, the, the family brought him. They're just four nameless people. So there's a chance that maybe he's been abandoned by family. If he hasn't been abandoned by family, he most likely believes that God has kicked him out of the family, the the ultimate family, the family of faith. Why? Because in the first century Jewish world, they, they held to something that theologians now called retribution theology. Retribution theology says there's a direct one-to-one like relationship between your suffering and what you've done. So if you're blind, it's because you did something wrong. If you're crippled, it's because you did something wrong. If you were blind, for instance, you might have someone ask you, who sinned, you or your parents? Because if you're a good guy, God wouldn't let this happen to you. It was a cultural custom. So this man would have grown up thinking, and even if he didn't think it, others around him certainly would have told him so, that either he or his parents sinned in such a way that God has cursed him. So go through all of that in your head. He's helpless, doesn't have a job, can't have a vocation. His identity, his worth, his personal sense of, of worth is destroyed, most likely not married without kids, and there's extra shame on that because of the culture, possibly abandoned by his family, but certainly the culture would be telling him that God has, in a sense, abandoned you or cursed you and kicked you out of the holy family. That's the man's condition. Now, I want you to turn with me to the next verse and read one of the top 10 most powerful Bible verses, one of the most powerful words of Jesus that Jesus ever spoke that's often overlooked because we fail to take all the things into consideration. What does the man who is broken, feeling worthless, can't even bring himself to Jesus? What happens to him? How does Jesus respond? And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Son. Who sinned? Him or his parents? No, 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 no. In my house, 
I call this one son. By the way, this is the only time in the scriptures in the gospel accounts where Jesus refers to a single individual as son. He refer to the disciples as a collective as little children or my children or in parables talk about it, but this is the only time to a single individual he says, son, this is my child. In Jesus' house, this one belongs to me. And friends, do you know your identity? If you belong to God, Jesus says, son, daughter, do you know who you are? See, this man... He's probably given up on life, very difficult life. You ever been to the point where you don't even want to go on? You just want to throw in the towel, you want to give up? He might have lost hope, but here's the thing. There was these four dudes, four guys, we don't even know their names. Four guys had faith for him and brought him to Jesus. Sometimes when you don't have hope or you don't have faith, someone has to have faith and hope on your behalf. And they have to pick you up and carry you and lower you through a roof and say, even though you might have lost hope, we haven't. We're taking you to Jesus at all costs. Even if we got to tear a roof in his house, tear a hole in his roof. Yeah, I got it. You ever heard of something called intercessory prayer? It's a Christian term, intercessory prayer. It means like praying on behalf of someone. It's this idea that even though someone uh, may not have faith, or maybe they're not even a Christian, but they're sick, you are praying to God, saying, God, I hope and I trust and I place my faith in you. Heal this person. And that person may not have any faith. They may, not, they may hate God. But that's why it's called intercessory prayer. You're praying on behalf of someone else. This here is intercessory action, intercessory doing. These people have faith on behalf of this man and do whatever it takes to get him to Jesus. Now look at what the text says. This is strange, it's bizarre. What, what, does, what does the paralyzed man do to receive forgiveness of sins in this text? Nothing. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic. Now, it's possible that the paralytic is, is included in this term, their faith, but, but the point is this. It is the faith of these men that Jesus recognizes and continues to proceed in the miraculous. Sometimes you need someone to have hope for you. Sometimes you need someone to have faith for you. Sometimes you're paralyzed on the ground, and you need some people to pick you up and lower you through the roof and introduce you to Jesus. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does the man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Blaspheming, blasphemy is a, like an old scripture term for uh, insulting or slandering God or doing something so irreverent or wrong against God that it's like next level sin. It's not just like a little down here. It's like blasphemy. It's, it's up there. And they're saying this man is pronouncing forgiveness of sins. This is blasphemy. Only God can do that. And immediately Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. 
Now, it's a rhetorical question. It's, it's, it's easier to, to say your sins are forgiven. Like, anyone here can do that. You shouldn't, because you're not God. But, like, it, you can do it. Like, we could just say, like, hey, get up, say hello to your neighbors, and tell them your sins are forgiven. Everyone could do it. And we'd be like, no, no problem. Lightning may strike, but you could do it. Much harder to say to someone who's paralyzed, get up and walk. Now, this is what's going on. The, the, the scribes are seeing that Jesus is claiming to be God. Now, most of us here, as modern people, think because Jesus is claiming to forgive sins that that means he's claiming to be God. And there's like a direct path there. Now, the conclusion is right. Jesus is claiming that, but the path, the logical flow of thought isn't, oh, I claim to forgive sins, that must be for God. There's a different path you have to use to get there. For a first century mind, where is the place forgiveness of sins takes place? What's the location? It's the temple. The temple is the location of forgiveness of sins. Why is the temple the place? What do you do at the temple to ensure forgiveness of sins? You sacrifice. Now, why is it the temple the location, and why do you sacrifice in this particular location? Because God is said to literally live there in the temple in the Holy of Holies. In other words, Jesus is doing what the temple, the sacrificial system, and the presence of God could do. Jesus is embodying, he's becoming a living, walking, breathing temple. He's doing all the things that that should do and accomplish. In other words, Jesus is bypassing the temple institution. By the way, who loves the institution of the temple at this time? The religious elite. Jesus is bypassing all that. So yes, he's claiming to be God, but he's doing so in a different way, in a much more radical and much more dangerous way. This is the type of stuff that can get you killed. So what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk but that you may know that the Son of Man, Son of Man is a, is a phrase Jesus is, uses of himself, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise up, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose immediately, picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we've never saw anything like this. It's interesting, Jesus says, pick up your bed and go home kind of a weird thing. Like, you know, someone's been paralyzed. Rise, now go home. It's, it's weird. But what, what does Jesus do in the scripture? This is actually quite common. Oftentimes when Jesus heals somebody, casts out a demon, uh, heals a leper, what, 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 what will he do? He'll, he'll say, um, you know, go home and tell your family what God has done for you. Or go to the priest and show them what God has done for you. In this case, he tells this man to go home. And this is a man, again, who possibly has been abandoned by his family. He might, might have felt abandoned by God, certainly ashamed to his family, certainly made to feel worthless. And Jesus says, in my home, son, you have a new family. Now go tell the old family what God has done for you. It's powerful, powerful stuff.
when we looked at Nicodemus, we said the barrier was, was a pride and arrogance, a trust in his ethnicity, a trust in his own kind of religious obedience to justify him before God. And Jesus says you must be born again. But we come to this person, what is the barrier? What is the barrier that's keeping the paralytic from Jesus? The barrier, and this is, this is crazy, he is literally so helpless, he cannot physically come to Jesus. He is so helpless, he can't get to Jesus. So how do you overcome the barrier? Someone has to help the helpless. You have to have hope on behalf of them. You have to do intercessory action. You have to help the helpless. Now, this is one of the most important things I could ever, ever teach, ever say from the pulpit. I'm not just trying to do that for sermonic effect. I'm serious. This is one of the most important things I can say. There are people in your life, in my life, people in our community, that the only barrier they have to hearing about Jesus is their absolute helplessness. They are physically incapable of getting to a place or a person that can introduce them to Jesus. And what they need is people to find them and take them, literally, physically, to the place of introduction of Jesus. And I mean this in a number of ways. Whenever you look out, there are people around us who are in states of absolute helplessness. Who are the most vulnerable in our culture? Who are the most vulnerable in our society? They don't just have to be paralyzed. How are we treating them? Who are the most vulnerable? Think about, think about when we think evangelism, we often think about like reaching someone that you know, has been stubbornly resistant to the gospel. Or we think about someone who's gonna have all these intellectual obstacles to Jesus. And so we study up on theology and apologetics. And that's, that's fine. We have an apologetics month. I love apologetics. I love theology. But we think about how to have the perfect response to this person's rebuttal. And oh, what if they reject me? And all the while, there are people, people, whose biggest barrier is they just need a friend to take them to Jesus. There are people who are so helpless and so lonely that all you have to do is be their friend and help them, and they'll let you talk about Jesus all day. Who are the most helpless? I'm not just talking again about someone who's paralyzed. I'm talking about the unborn. I'm talking about those with physical disabilities. I'm talking about those in hospice care. I talk about those who, who are so lonely they have no friends and they're just wasting away the last years of their life. How we help the helpless matters because this church will be judged by God Almighty by how we help the helpless. Cultures are judged by how they help the helpless. Entire civilizations are judged by how they help the helpless. At any stage, the Lord himself cares for the last, the lost, and the least of them, and he tells his church to go out 
and to find them. There's a story of a man who used to, uh, he used to attend this church. Now he's in hospice care in San Jose. It's one of those stories where, um, you know, someone's given like three months to live and somehow two years later they're, they're still alive, but they're just in an absolute miserable condition. Like everything in their body is failing. And some of you know what I'm talking about because you've lost loved ones or seen this, but it's like, it's one of those things where it's like, man, it's three months and now it's been two years and this person is just suffering more and more. Well, that's what happened to this individual. Um, he's in hospice care in San Jose. He used to attend this, uh, attend this church, but he, he can't and that's where, you know, insurance, money, all that. He's, he's in San Jose now and we still have people that go visit him at this church. But the reason why I tell you this is uh, there's a local church nearby and a man uh, reached out to people in the hospice. And, and said, like, do you, do, do you want me to take you to church? Now, let me tell you about m- m- my friend who's in the hospice. His body, it, it doesn't work anymore. He's in a miserable state. It's pain, it's suffering. Body functions don't work right. You know, you have sores on your body that, are, that people think are gross, that leak, there's pus. It, it's, it's a miserable state. But there is someone from a local church who goes every single Sunday and does the hard work of getting this dying man into his vehicle and into a church service. And he does it every single week. There are people in our community who would love for someone to do that for him. Part of the reason why we're doing this microsite idea I've been talking about is we can try to take it to them. But there's other people. And it's not about bringing a church service. Trust me, it's not about bringing a church service. It's about relationships. Some people just need a friend, and they're lonely. I gotta be clear on this. We we don't help the helpless because it's like, oh, we're just trying to convert them. It's like, oh, there's this this person, and I wanna teach them about Jesus, and if I help them, then, then, then they'll let me tell them about Jesus, and we can convert them to Christianity. We don't do it because, you know, I, I do, especially in our culture, we like to pride ourselves, like, we're such a good person. Oh, I volunteer hours and I go and I drive this person and, you know, it's, it's just the least I could do. That's, that's not why we do these things. One, we do it because Jesus commanded, but two, it's because these people are made in the very image of God and worthy of experiencing God's love. And sometimes before someone could trust in the Father, they need to feel the love of the Father's family. Sometimes, before you believe in a heavenly Father, you gotta know that that Father's family loves you. These people are not to be pitied, they are to be loved, because they are made in the image of Almighty God. And he says, this one is my son or my daughter. That's why we go out. That's why we care about the hurting, the last, the lost, the least, the helpless because God tells us to, and they're worthy of our friendship and our love. Simple sermon. Simple sermon application. Very simple. Difficult to do. But this is what I'd ask you. Can you think of people in your life right now or people in the community that you could seek out to think in concrete terms, who is it that I could physically help because they're in a state of helplessness? Who is the person that you need to go find and lower them through the roof to introduce them to Jesus? 
Maybe it's friends, maybe it's family, maybe it's you've heard of something at work, or maybe you don't know anything and you have to think creatively, where are the most vulnerable in, in, in our community? And it could be a number of areas. You don't have to think in super extremes. You don't have to be in paralysis. Be in hospice. They could be someone who's lonely. Could be a single mom who's working three or four jobs. Who are they? Think of them. And ask the Lord to work in your life to give you motivation and conviction to go find them and lower them through the roof. There's a parable that Jesus gives in the book of Luke. It says this, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many, and at the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I have to go examine them. Please excuse me. And another said, can't come. I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to the master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to the servant, go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and lame. And the servant said, sir, we've already done as you've commanded, but there's still room for more. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. May the father's house be full of his children. And may we as a church go out with the invitations, with the good news of what our heavenly father has done in Jesus. Each week, we take a certain sin barrier and show how Jesus interacts with it. Um, last week was Nicodemus. This week is a person who's helpless, and we're going to tackle next things for the next three weeks. Uh, in addition, I wanted to have a time and space for people to share their testimonies. So I don't just want this to be in the abstract evangelism, just kind of how do you do it. I, I, I want to I share the stories that are in this room to talk about the sin, sin bears. We were all lost. We were all blind, and God found a way to, to find us and to save us. And so each week for the next part of this series, we'll be having people share. Today, I've invited uh, a good dude, uh, Tyler, to share his story, and Greg's gonna come up, and they're gonna chat about what God did in his life and how he brought him uh, home to the Father's house. Let's welcome Tyler Grimaldo, everybody. Hi. I would have loved to have come up here and said I, I lowered him through Isaac's roof. And, uh, <laughs> but uh, I just really appreciated it, Tyler, o over the, getting to know him over the years. And, uh, uh, and I've appreciated him. I mean, this is probably like the, the fifth or sixth time that we've asked him to, to come in one venue or another to share his, his story. And, uh, you know, he's, he's, uh, he's done it every time and, and uh, he's been a blessing to many. So, uh, Tyler, just maybe just share a little bit about yourself and, and how uh, you grew up. Okay, so uh, I was raised, born and raised Jehovah's Witness. Uh, my mom's side is like completely devout Jehovah's Witnesses. 
and I'm very close with them. Uh, my dad's side are like cultural Catholics, like Catholics, but not really. Um, 